everyone. This is Charlie Levine, and you are listening to the Angler's Journal Podcast, brought to you by Angler's Journal Magazine. If you're looking for a different fishing magazine that isn't just full of the same old, same old stuff, that actually writes some in-depth stories about the people and places and boats and all the cool stuff that makes fishing great, check out anglersjournal.com and pick up a subscription. The Angler's Journal Podcast is brought to you by Atlantis Marine Finance. You know, Myself, I just unloaded my boat, and I'm without a boat for the first time in like 15 years. And I'm already looking around. I got ideas. I think a few different things I want to purchase or, you know, future shopping as it is. But when it comes time to do it, I'm going to need to finance that boat. And Atlantis Marine Finance is a great option. They've got a lot of experience. They've got a team of industry pros, actual boat owners. They have the knowledge and resources to help you get on the water So if you're looking to purchase a new boat or a used boat or even a project boat, Atlantis Marine Finance will give you all the educational resources you need to make a good decision and help you down that path to your next boat purchase. For more information, visit AtlantisMarineFinance.com and good luck. Get out there and get that boat. All right. Well, we have a very special guest on the line today calling from the Northeast and the striped bass are in. It is mid-May when we're talking. And I knew if we wanted to talk surf casting with Jerry Audette, we had to get him on the phone soon because this guy burns the midnight oil and is out there fishing all the time and is kind enough to uh, wake up from his slumber and talk with the Angler's Journal podcast. So, Jerry, thanks for making the time, and it's great to get you on the on the pod. Yeah, th- thanks, Charlie. No problem. Uh, like I said, uh, I was out last night. I think I got in bed about 4.30, so it's about, what, going on 1 o'clock right now? So, uh, you know, I just got done with my breakfast, just had my coffee, and uh, ready to roll, ready to roll. <laughs> oh, that's the, but that's a good thing, right? That means the fishing's good. Yeah, yeah, you know... Typically, this time of year, uh, we're in the middle of May, I, I try not to do the, like the deep overnight, all-night thing. This is the cusp of getting serious time typically, but this year has been early. Um, I had arguably my best first week of May ever this year. Um, when I'm fishing in early May, I'm usually thinking about schoolies and hoping to catch a 12, 15, maybe an you know, 18-pound fish would be, you know, nice for the places I fish, out front. Um, you know, out front meaning more in the ocean. For us with striped bass, you can catch them in rivers and estuaries kind of all year. And guys who focus on those places really early on can catch a little bit bigger fish and sometimes special big fish. But for me, out front, early May is, you know, more small fish. But this season, my first week of May, I had a couple of 25-pounders. I had three fish that were in the 20-pound class, and I can't remember how many teen fish I had between 12 and 18 pounds, but it was a lot. I mean, it was definitely more than 12, 15, maybe pushing 20 fish over four nights, maybe. And that's really exceptional. And what that ends up doing is it kicks me into overdrive. And so now I'm living in what I call the upside down. So getting in bed 3, 4, 5 a.m., and then with my you know, my own business and being a full-time freelance writer, I can set my schedule. So I'm getting up 11, 1130, 12, 1230 every day. So, yeah. You're in the so cycle. It's been, it's been good. Yep. My, ba- my buddy, uh, Crazy Alberto, calls it the non-human hours. And that, that's that's the, right. 
That's like when the when the real trophy fish are are typically caught. Yes, yes, that's the. Uh, I I'll never forget. Um, first of all, Alberto's fantastic. He's hilarious, and he's what a fisherman he is. Um, but I'll never forget early on talking to John Skinner, who is a very well known in my circle, well known fishing personality. Uh, lots of articles has like a YouTube channel. Um, I remember asking him early on, John, what's the number one tip you would give to a striped bass angler? What's the number one thing I should do? And he said, fish at night. Without hesitation, first thing. Fish at night. Fish at night, and everything else will come. And I took that very seriously, and I tend to be someone who, if you tell me it's the way it is, this is, this is what you have to do, it doesn't really matter how I feel or what, you know, makes me happy in some cases it's like all right well if i need to fish at night then i'm gonna fish at night so uh, that really kicked off my whole surf fishing obsession because i i love fishing at night i love fishing at night in general for other species too so yeah and and you just said a word there that i think is a good word for what we're going to be diving into obsession um you know we don't really know each other all that well but we've been working together for a while now and I love your writing and I love your photography and everything you do to me kind of has that aura of obsession. So like you're saying, I mean, I don't know how many days in a row will you fish when, when the bite is going? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. You know, there's, there's two answers to that, to that question. When the bite is good is from May 1st to <laughs> December 1st. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, I am, I, I love fishing and surf fishing for striped bass so much. And I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but our season is long. You know, we don't, the guys who fish for tarpon on the worm hatch, for example, that's a pretty short period of time. Or, you know, guys who really love albies, you know, that's a very short period of time. In my neck of the woods, we have striped bass from mid-April. My God, this year was early April, all the way until into December. And so for me, my season is very long. Um, I generally don't fish seven days a week because I don't like to fish Saturdays because I'm so secretive and I don't like being out when most anglers are out. I, I probably only fish about 50% of Fridays as well. So generally, I'm more of a five- uh, five nights a week, but my sessions are long and they require fishing from well after dark until, you know, a little bit before dawn. So like I said, I live in the upside down and it's a very hard physical type of fishing. Uh, you know, lots of kinds of fishing are hard, but surf fishing in the Northeast for striped bass is very, very physical. Uh, there have been nights where I've walked 15 miles. Uh, most nights I'm walking at least a few miles. I'm often riding a bike to get into places because we're constantly sneaking into places. Maybe we shouldn't be. <laughs> and the sleep, the sleep deprivation is hard. It's really hard. And so it takes a toll on the body, especially over three, four, five, six months. And so it's hard sometimes to fish seven days a week without completely breaking down and mentally breaking down. It's really hard my mental health honestly, the sleep deprivation. I could imagine. And, you know, 
you getting into that physical nature of things and I kind of want to back up because I, I know a bit about your background and I know you were a cyclist and, and an athlete. Um, but I want to talk about your education because you're probably like one of the most, uh, educated guys on the beach. And, and I don't know how much that helps you or what, but, but tell our listeners a little bit about your background and in your academia and all that. Yeah, so I came to fishing writing and photography in a very non-traditional way, and I say that knowing that a lot of fishing industry people, writers, photographers, come to it in pretty non-traditional ways. <laughs> you know, most of us have some kind of background in something else. But for me, you know, my whole life, everyone told me, you're going to be a scientist, you're going to be a scientist. And I'm going back to you know, elementary grade, you know, very young um, I had that mind, I had that curiosity, and I was absolutely, again, I'll use the word obsessed, with bugs and birds and that kind of thing. So everyone my whole life told me I was going to be a scientist. So I got a, I got a bachelor's in science and biology and a minor in chemistry. And then I went on to graduate school, and I have a PhD in exercise physiology, but really I'm a molecular biologist, so what they call an integrated physiologist, so examining proteins and enzymes at the highest level, looking at how these things change the body and can prevent disease. So we were using exercise as an intervention to prevent uh, certain diseases or cure them or treat them, COPD and cancer and heart disease. And I, that was my graduate degree and worked with uh, muscle vasculature and people don't know how important that is in disease actually. but. And then I went on to be um, a researcher for the federal government and working with our warfighters, actually. And I did a variety of things and got all the way up to the level of managing a task area, which is a sort of multidisciplinary, multiple researchers, millions of dollars, lots of employees that covers – it's an umbrella that covers a lot of different things and dealing primarily with heat stroke but doing some other things along with that um, traumatic brain injury, that kind of thing. A lot of very technical, I can just imagine the studying and the labs and all that stuff. And so, but what I'm trying to get at is like, that's sort of how your brain works. And, and I can see how you dissect fishing. And I would imagine you take a lot of notes and, and track things. And I mean, is that background showing up in what you do every night? Yeah, so I'm I'm very meticulous um, and very data oriented. Um, my fishing is very very calculated. I am a tide fisherman primarily, so I'm fishing around the tides. Uh, I don't care when they are as long as it's after dark. I don't go fishing at the same time each night. I'm very meticulous about what I'm doing in terms of how long I'm fishing a certain lure or a fly, how, where exactly is it going, figuring out what the fish are doing in terms of how they're interacting with the water and the bait, and trying to dissect everything to the nth degree. One of the things I tell anglers in like my seminar series or when I give talks is you need to try to explain everything. You should never be saying, oh, uh, you know, when I cast over here, it seems like the fish are always there or, you know, I don't really understand why, but if I cast this lure this way, it seems to work better. You need to explain that. 
you need to say, well, the reason it works that way is because there's a rock there. And when the tide gets to the certain height, uh, the darter slides over it in such a way that it slides sideways and it wiggles in just the right way or catches the edge of that rock and bounces. And that triggers the strike. And if the tide isn't at the right height, then the fish can't get behind it or, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And that's really important to me. And I keep a meticulous log with a whole bunch of data. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty intense and lots of notes. And I use that as, you know, a catalog to pull from every single night. Yeah. And that's something so, every angler should really do. I wish I was better at it myself. I do. I do it more when I'm like on trips and things like that, but not in my day to day thing, but I'm not out there like you. I mean, I have all these, unfortunately I, I don't always get to go when the tide is just right. It's like I have little windows in my busy life and then I go and I right. don't. Right. And that's how I think right. a lot of us people out there are. And then, you know, it's, it's so intriguing to read your articles and, and to see this like in-depth analysis and sort of, you know, turn the light on for a lot of people, I believe. Yeah. I, th- I think one of the, one of the top tips that I, I give any angler, but especially surf anglers or saltwater anglers, really probably, but any, but anyone, even if you're a trout guy, if you're a bass guy, muskie or whatever, is you should pick a, a one spot, one small area and fish it to death and record it all. Because looking for patterns and windows is the, one of the most critical aspects of productivity, especially with big fish. You're trying to find something that's repeatable so that you can predict it and you can be there. That, that's it. You know, whether it's a certain hatch of bugs, if you're you know, a stream fisherman, or if you're fishing a particular tide and a piece of structure, finding that pattern and finding that window is so important. And frankly, for me and a lot of other anglers that I know, finding the pattern is as fun as catching the fish. Being able to say, well, this is what's going to happen and showing up and then it happens. Yeah, is adrenaline, right? That's it's just amazing, and so from a you know productivity standpoint, it's really important. But also from a fun standpoint, it's really important. Yeah, it's it's being successful, and you know all the data and research is paying off. It's just like curing one of your patients, right? It's that's right. It's all coming that's together. Right. That's right. That's um, exactly right. So, and, and tell us how you got into outdoor writing, because it's, it's a pretty cool story. Yeah, so I got into to the actual writing aspect of it slowly. Uh, I started a, a long time ago, uh, because when I was doing the cycling thing, um, I was on a small regional sponsored team, a variety of bike companies and sock companies and physical therapy, I got we were required to do a blog, and this was when blogs were just sort of starting out. And we would write about our experiences and our races and stuff, and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And I, I've been fishing my whole life since I could walk, and I was fishing then, but I, I was really deeply into the heavy, heavy into the racing thing. And we had to do that. And I loved it. And, you know, it just kind of built from there. I never had a uh, creative writing course or anything like in college because I was so deep into the science world. Um, but there came a point about, let's see, six or seven years ago where, more than that, eight, eight, nine years ago, I guess, where I realized that I was just not very happy. Um, the science is very exciting. 
Uh, it really makes you feel like you're doing something great for society when you're making these findings and contributing to, you know, the warfighter's health or something like that. But I felt like there was something more out there. And I started writing articles then about fishing just because I wanted to share. And like, <laughs> like a lot of other things that I do, the things I do I get deep, deep, deep into. And I was just like, this makes me feel so happy. And this is something that I just enjoy doing so much. And I'm talking about the writing specifically, wow. not, not, not even fishing, that I want to do this as much as possible. And so I actually lost my job, and it afforded me, though it did not feel like this at the time, <laughs> right, right. it afforded me the opportunity to take a crack at this. And it's been a slow, hard grind since then to get to the point now where this is my full-time you know, gig writing and photography. And um, I, I just, I really, really enjoy it in a way that I didn't think would be possible in a job, essentially. Wow, that's, you know, I love it too. And it's really cool to hear uh, your passion for it because that's so important. I mean, we're not millionaires and we're probably not gonna right. be, but it's like loving what you do is, is such a gift. And, and putting our magazine together, you know, I hear it all the time about the photography and, and people really love it. And that's an editor's dream is working with a guy who can write and shoot photos, guy or girl, you know, anybody. And yeah. the fact that you send us these packages that have everything, it's, it's really wonderful. And I feel like with the reader, they're really getting to know you and getting to understand that experience because it's all your stuff. You know, a lot of times right. as an editor, we work with a lot of people who do one or the other quite well. And so it's like someone might send me a snook story, but there's no photos. So I, I scour around and I find some photos, but they might not be from that spot or what have right. you. Um, your right. stuff is like, this is exactly what happened. It's, it's really uh, it's a treat. Yeah, and, you know, I love writing because I get to share myself. You know, I think a lot of writers, fishermen, love to tell stories, right? We just, just love to tell the story. But there's some aspect, whether they know it or not, and I know it for myself, in that I'm getting to share a little bit of me when I'm doing my writing or I'm taking these photos. And it's more than you know, bragging about what we're doing. And, and, and I know most writers, fishing writers and photographers, they're not bragging, but they're not just sharing the experience. They're really sharing themselves. And that's one of the aspects. It's a, it's a connection that I make with people whom I don't even know, you know, sure. and that to me feels so good. And, you know, we're not, <laughs> look, we're not the things we do. I, I believe this very strongly, that when someone asks, you know, who are you? You know, tell me about yourself. You, you know, a lot of people lead with their career or something they do. Oh, I'm a, I'm a fisherman. Oh, I, I play chess. Uh, I, I tap dance. You know, whatever it is. But those are things we do. They're not who we are. But that being said, there are some things that are so close to who we are that are such a mirror for who we are. They reflect back to us so much what we are that it feels sanctified. And I'm not, a, I'm not a religious man, but it starts to feel like purpose. And so fishing 
is one of those things for me, and surf fishing specifically for striped bass. It makes me feel whole, and it makes me feel something that I don't get in a lot of aspects of my life. And then when I get to write and when I get to photograph, I get to try to share that with other people and try to show them this is who I am and this is how I am. And that is what makes it so fulfilling. And that's why I love it so much. Wow. And, and that, that's why I try to put all of that together to show you, whoever you are out there, who I am a little bit. That's the goal, anyways. Man, that's, that's some powerful stuff. That, that's really wonderful. And it's cool that we get to be your vehicle, you know, to help do that because it's your stuff looks great. And we love having it in the magazine, too. And you've had cover photos and plenty of uh, two-page opening spreads and just yeah. your, your, your imagery is really good. And again, I think it goes back to that obsession thing because I feel like you're probably a self-taught photographer and you are shooting in about the most uncomfortable conditions possible out there in nature in the middle of the freaking night. Yes. Um, I am completely self-taught. I'll talk about this. I'm going to do a sidebar, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about this. But, you know, my brother-in-law, he's a, he's a trained photographer, and I was telling him before I bought a camera, you know, I had a little point-and-shoot Olympus PG, one of the original ones, and I said, you know, this is the things I want to do. I want to, you know, I want to go out, and I want to photograph these fish and these situations. And he's like, you're going to go out at night in the saltwater by yourself in the water. I mean, People who are listeners who don't know about surf casting, I'm wearing a wetsuit a lot of times. I don't do a ton of swimming, but I'm wading way out to distant rocks and sandbars and that kind of thing. And you're going to try to photograph a wild animal by yourself while you're holding it in the night yeah, in the saltwater? It's, it's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. And he literally said to me, and, and, he, and he was partially right. He's like, it's going to be very difficult. And I said, hold my beer. <laughs> I said, I want to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to figure it out. And they just kind of started from there. And I just wanted to, you know, share again, share the experience and try to capture what I was seeing. So I'm, you know, coming back to your obsession question, you know, I'm good with statistics. I'm good with um, technology and gear. So that portion of it was, you know, came very naturally to me. I, I really like the cameras and, you know, knowing all how to use them and all that kind of thing. And from there, it was just doing a lot of experimenting, ruining a lot of gear, um, modifying a lot of gear, and just spending a lot of time in the winter, in the basement, in the dark, holding a pillow or holding a sign and figuring out, you know, how far away I needed to be and what lighting worked the best and how I was going to do all of these things, and then just going for it. Yeah. And that, that's photography for me. Photography for me is just like fishing. You give yourself the tools. You understand how to use them. You know the fundamentals. And then a lot of it's luck. You've got to be out there and put yourself in the right situation. You know, when it comes to fishing, you've got to be out there during the right hide, during the right bait, during the right bite, and then hope that the fish, you know, um, work with you. And with photography, for me, it's the same thing. I, I know how to use my equipment. I know the basics. I know the fundamentals. And then I go out there and I go, let's see what happens. <laughs> and, then, and then when the moment comes, you have to seize it. You have to be ready to set that hook 
you have to know how to fight that fish. And that's how it is with my photography too. When the situation comes, I kind of have to drop everything and make sure that I get the shot. I catch a lot less fish because of it, frankly. You know, the best time to catch a big fish is after you just caught a big fish and I'm back in the shallows screwing around with my camera, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you do because you're, you're capturing some stuff that, you know, I don't really, I don't know who else does it, you know, like you do in the, in the evening. We have some really gifted photographers, but getting those night shots is next level stuff. And I don't, I don't want to get into the weeds on what you use or how you set all this stuff up. I'm just glad you do it. Yeah. And it's, it, it, it's extra complicated because I'm having to tote that stuff around and I'm always by myself. I mean, that's the other thing about the style of fishing that I do. It's very secretive. There's a lot of complexity to it, the physical nature of it. And there's not a ton of people who do it the way I do. It's certainly night to night to night to night to night to night to night, you know, every single night for five or six, seven months. And so I'm always by myself, and that makes things quadruply complicated. You know, I was just out on a boat with my friend Tom, uh, who's a charter captain down in New Jersey. And, man, it's just such a, you know, it just feels so nice to be able to shoot other people during the daylight. It, it, it feels like shooting fish in a barrel. It's like cheating almost in some ways uh, because it's just so much less complicated. And, you know, but, but, but again, I want to share what I'm doing and, and myself. And so I had to figure out how to do it. And, and I do think that I'm at least partially there anyways. So, so how many times do people try to weasel into your fishing and you have to just kind of nicely be like, no, I go by myself. <laughs> That's a, that must a happen like all the time. It happens a lot. On, it happens a fair amount on social media, people asking for, you know, how's the bite been? What's the report? Where should I go? Um, and usually they're going to get ignored. <laughs> no, really, they're, they're, usually they're not even going to get a response in person. It's a little bit less. The Northeast, uh, striped bass, you know, night nighttime surfcaster seem to be fairly hardcore. They tend to have a pretty set standard of, of ethics and morals, although it seems like it keeps changing a little bit. And social media has made a huge impact on a lot of this stuff. But you'd be surprised. A lot of people aren't going to ask. The, the thing that happens, though, is people are always looking for you. People are looking for me. And people yeah, are trying to, I'm sure they you know, know your car and all that. That's right. People are looking for all kinds of stuff like that to follow you. I've heard of um, guys getting GPS trackers stuck on their truck. So people put a GPS tracker on their truck so they could track where they went so they would knew where they'd go. Yes. I mean, it gets pretty intense like that. So sneaking around is makes things so complicated for me, too. And I have to really go to the ends of the earth to make sure that I'm not being spotted. And, and, and I've driven an hour to a spot walked you know a mile get out there and there's one guy in the spot and i hide i'm i'm, I'm a grown man laying down hiding in the bushes <laughs> you know <laughs> and i get out there and he's there for 45 minutes i go well he's not going to leave and i walk back and i go home wow because it's not worth it to me to lose my spots it's the spots and the bites and the patterns and all of my data are so important to me and my productivity that you know i'd rather just let that go for the night than risk being spotted or something like that. 
So to to like the normal, just casual guy, this stuff sounds like a little nuts, right? But yeah. I mean, what are right. some of the, have you found yourself being tailed and <laughs> whatnot? I, I have not found myself being tailed, but like I said, I go so far above and beyond to make sure that I'm not going to be recognized. Um, I've run from people, uh, literally run. I have laid in the bushes for a half an hour. I've crawled through the woods. I've belly crawled my way through the woods a couple of times, hiding from the police. <laughs> I, I, there was one spot in particular that used to be able to park, and then they took away the parking, which I think was probably actually my fault. And then, uh, and this was a long time ago, and then uh, the police would come and patrol, and I would still sneak in anyways, and then there was one or two times where I was coming out of the spot, and the, the cops were pulling in, and I sprint in the woods, and now I'm laying down in the woods as they're, like, spotlighting, you know. And that, that's not exactly I'm, – I'm actually – I'll be frank. I'm lying a little bit about exactly what it looks like because I don't even want people to know what – where I'm trying to get through what it looks like. So, <laughs> so I'm even making a little bit of that up. But, you know, it's, it's so competitive in terms of guys wanting to know where you're catching that you have to be that way, and it's so easy for spots to get ruined with – people shining lights around or leaving garbage or, you know, I do my best to not trespass, but sometimes there's, you know, we get into borderline situations, let's put it that way. And it would be very easy to, for me to lose these spots. I have to be really careful. Yeah. It's unfortunate, you know, that so many great spots do kind of get shifted by wealthy people who own expensive waterfront real estate. And yeah. um, I'm sure you're up on all that much more than I am here but um yeah it's a it's a major major problem it's so in the state of massachusetts in rhode island and in, in most of the northeast states if not all of them uh the fisherman has the right to be anywhere below the median high tide line so essentially if you're anywhere even closer to the water or touching the water you're totally legal yeah Landowners don't see it that way, but that's not even the problem because i've had many an argument i've had the cops called on me etc that's not the problem. The problem parking. is access to that point. Yeah. Is parking somewhere, sneaking in somewhere, and actually getting on the shore. And I know, for example, the state of Rhode Island right now, um, there's a lot of really good groups banding together for advocacy to get some stuff like formally on the books to protect right of ways and access to beaches. Because for some reason in Rhode Island, a lot of these giant mansions and stuff they put fences right down into the water and they had hire private security guards and i've dealt with that before too so it can get bananas real quick you know wow yeah, yeah. i mean taylor swift is right there in watch hill she's probably <laughs> yeah she <don't>... yeah <laughs> it's 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 wild there, there, there's some places that are notorious and this frankly the the thing is I try to avoid all that stuff anyways because if it's notorious, people already know. Right. So you're not going to be anywhere near it anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. All of my spots are, you know, out of the way. They're small. They're mine sort of deal. Yeah, it, it seems to me that those easy spots like jetties and breachways and all that, are they're going to be mobbed up and you, you don't want any part of that stuff. I don't want any part of that. You know, I, I'll be frank too. I mean, I'm making it sound um, maybe even partially different than it is. The fact of the matter also is that I like being alone. I like being alone. 
I enjoy being out and experiencing the night and the fishing without distraction. And sometimes being around people is very distracting for me. I don't like being observed. That's also a problem for me. And so I like being away from people. I, I, I have a hard time fishing around people. So yes, I'm trying to protect my spots. I'm trying to protect my bites. I'm trying to protect my data. But, but yeah. I'm also just don't enjoy being around other people. So uh, I tend to avoid those places. But you know, for the angler listening right now, it wasn't always that way. I mean, I made the conscious decision a few times to say, I need to fish a couple places that are well-known. Because the reason they're well-known is because they're good. And if you're trying to learn a technique or how to deal with big fish, sometimes you just got to suck it up and you got to deal with fishing around other people to learn the skills to take them to your own you know, nirvana and take them to your own places. And so that's something I often tell people starting out. You know, you're going to have to deal with it at first and, you know, learn all the skills that you need and then you can take them someplace else. So mm. I've done it. I mean, fished in, you know, the breachways and the lighthouses, you know, Rhode Island, that kind of thing. Okay. And you're sort of a gearhead too, right? You're always out testing new stuff. So do you fish kind of the same stuff every year or are you always kind of um, adding to the well, arsenal? Yeah, that's a great, what a great question too. I, that's the other thing. I mean, I think this comes back to the scientist mind. I love experimenting with different lures. For me, finding a new lure that works, that no one has really discovered or unlocked or used in a certain way or something like that, it's very similar to getting a good shot with a camera or catching a nice fish. You're unlocking a secret or finding a, good, a new good spot, for example. You're unlocking a secret, and, and I, I love that. So I'm always messing around with stuff, modifying lures, you know, trying new lures. I don't think I was the one who did this, but I'm certainly the one who has sort of catapulted glide baits in the surf to their notoriety. Um, I'm sure I wasn't the first one to use one, but I, I know for me, for example, the Savage Gear Freestyler, which they just brought back, but they stopped making for a while. I'm the reason they went from $8.99 retail to $60 and being sold used on eBay. Like, I you know, took what was essentially a musky lure, a glide bait, and I brought it into the surf and saw how productive these gliders could be. And that to me was just amazing. I, I loved knowing I had something that other people didn't. And I kept it to myself for a few years and then it kind of got out and then I started telling everybody and now everybody knows and you could, I've written about it a bunch of times. So I love that. I love playing with that stuff. I love testing lines. I, lo I love messing with hooks. You know, I can tell you the differences between the VMC 9626, the Mustad 9430, the Owner ST66, the BKK Raptor Z versus the Viper versus the blah, blah, blah. I can go through all of those and tell you, you know, the different penetrations of them, the sizes of their barbs, who's stronger, who bends, who breaks, all of that stuff. Wow. And I, I just love all, testing different lines and stuff. I love all of it because it's all part of it. And, and it, it just, it, there's always something to think about. There's always something to play with. And I love that. I don't use any rear hooks on any of my lures. And figuring out a way to use just a single hook on a lure, and my God, we're not even talking about fly fishing, by the way. 
we're not even talking about fly fishing. We're talking about experimentation and yeah. all of that. We'll, we'll keep fly fishing for the next one. <laughs> yeah, but when it comes to lures, you know, figuring out a way to make them all work as they were designed with a single hook has been quite the journey. And there's all kinds of different ways to do it. But, do you know, switching to one hook, I, you know, I lose less fish because they're not getting the rear hook and then getting the leverage that that rear hook can afford. I'm also doing a lot less damage to the fish, which is really important to me and making sure that that fish can be released safely. It's also a lot better for your hands. Yeah. <laughs> and I've had plenty of hooks through my hands where I've had to cut them off and back them out and that kind of thing, and that prevents that. So, you know, that's another example of messing around with stuff and experimenting with it to get it to do what I want. Because that's the thing. That's the thing. When I go to a spot, a new spot, an old spot, whatever, and I'm trying to know exactly what's going on to dig down to the nth degree. Okay, this is exactly what's happening. Now, what is the lure? What is the fly? What is the technique that's going to put whatever it is that I want to do in that spot in the way I want it to do it? So the lure is not, oh, oh, I heard the SP minnow is good. I'm going to go down and start casting with it. No, no, no. It's the water is doing this at this spot, and the fish are responding, and the bait is responding, and these three things are integrating together. And then what is the lure that will be presented in the perfect way into that one little spot and do what I want it to do? And that's where the modification comes in. That's where the messing around comes in Damn. with the lures, bringing new kinds of lures, new kinds of flies, new kinds of concepts is to make just trying to fit that shaped the, uh, uh, peg into the perfectly shaped hole. Yeah, yeah. So how much, like how much gear is in your truck or car when you're cruising around? So that's so. So then that's the thing that may. It, there's a juxtaposition. I actually keep things relatively tight. Uh, I have to because, um, you know, I'm 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 traveling by foot so much. So, you know, my plug bag, which is what we call, you know, our loop, our lure bag, our lure bags. It's just a couple of tubes, these two plastic tubes. And in each of them, um, because I don't use rear hooks, I can fit some more lures, and I usually have uh, eight lures, four in each tube, maybe five in each tube, depending on the size, and I can fit some outside. So I'm probably carrying a dozen, 15 lures, hard hard plugs. And then I also, I also use a lot of soft plastic, so I'm carrying another 15 or so of those. So I don't carry that much stuff. You've just fine-tuned it, it to exactly what you want. That. That's right, and and then and then you're changing that all the time. Every spot has a different set of tools that you're bringing with you. Um, when it comes to rods and reels, I keep things simple. You know, I have just I I, I really like uh, Lamy Glass GFB rods, so I use those. Um, I basically have just a couple that I use, and I'm a Vanstall guy. I use a Vanstall reel, which is just such a weapon. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just yeah, I don't know what I would do without those because they're just so unkillable you yeah. know i mean being out with your reel underwater half of the tide for 120 130 nights i mean nothing else would survive they're just unbelievable so and for yeah. running line or you you must use braid i would think yeah i use braid i'm a I, i've used everything um my favorite line ever and maybe they'll listen to this this is why i'm going to say it <laughs> is it was spider wire invisibrade and it was just so good it had this waxy coating and it would last forever and i just loved it and they got rid of it um 
But I like suffix 832. That's what I'm using now currently. Um, I either use 30 or 50. I have a spool for my reels of each. Um, I actually have sort of moved away from 50. I use 30 most of the time now, um, which doesn't sound very strong, but uh, it, it's sufficient for what I do, and it allows me to cast far. And as a surf caster, sometimes casting distance can make a difference, although a lot of times it's not nearly as important as beginner anglers think. And then I use a 50 or 80 pound leader is generally what I use. So. Okay. And so when you're fishing a spot, I would imagine you want to see it at all levels of the tide to figure mm-hmm. out like, Oh, maybe I'll go stand over there. And once the water comes in, you know, you might not see that rock, but you know, it's there. Do you, do you still find yourself scouting a lot or have you kind of just said, these are my spots and this is where I go? Uh, well, this may not be surprising given everything else we've talked about, but no, I'm still constantly adding. I, I added a new spot this year uh, to my, my portfolio, as I call it. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I was looking for something to fill in a time period and conditions and to maybe potentially replace another spot that I've been unhappy with. Uh, and so I am always looking for new spots. I'm always looking at satellite maps. I'm always thinking about, you know, this is a, this is a weakness in my season. This is a weakness in, you know, the winds that I fish or the tides that I fish or the temperatures that I fish. Who, who, what's the spot I could fill in there? Um, and then I go, and, and this, is, this is, again, I may have even said this, but number one piece of advice for people starting out or people in the, in the midst of their surf fishing career is you just got to go fish. You got to go fish it as much as possible. And there's a little bit of a gamble you have to make and just say, well, you know, this doesn't really make sense, but I've never fished the spot under these conditions. Probably not going to be good, but I got to go. And you just have to fish the heck out of it. And that's why it takes so long to get good in the surf fishing world versus something like, you know, largemouth bass fishing where you could go every day at the same time and fish, you know, relatively stable conditions. We have such dramatic swings in tide and temperature and migration and winds. It takes a long time to build up the, the adequate amount of data to really know what makes a spot tick. And so I do try to go when the tides are low, but I've been doing this long enough now and I do it enough that honestly I can go in the middle of the night and as long as the water isn't, you know, 15 feet deep, I can get a pretty good sense of what's going on over the course of multiple trips. You're never going to know anything right away. And frankly, frankly, this spot that I've added this spring is seeming to, is seeming to work out, and I'm fishing the opposite tide of what I thought. And I felt like an idiot. I mean, I, it still makes me feel like a fool all the time. Surf fishing makes me feel like a fool all the time, still. And I'm fishing the exact opposite tide of what I would have thought. And that's really cool. That's really exciting. I was psyched. Yeah, 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 I wasted some nights, and, you know, I could have gone somewhere else, elsewhere. But when I discovered it was going to fish so well on the opposite side, I went, oh, man, this is so cool. Or, I, I, is it this reason and that reason? Oh, now I can use these lures. And, like, oh, man, maybe, you know, and it makes me, I get all jazzed. I, I, I love that aspect of it. Yeah, it keeps so. it fresh. And and for all of you, the listeners out there who, who do want to learn more, you, you provide a seminar series in the off-season, in the wintertime, when there's no striped bass around. And, right. and it seems like that's really taking off for you. And, and I applaud you for sharing, you know, some of the stuff you've learned and, and helping people get, get their, 
you know what together. So, I mean, how can people learn about that if they want to sign up for one of your classes? Yeah, sure. So I put on a, right now it's a 10 week seminar series. Uh, we do half of it basically. It's more than half now though, but uh, is sort of teaching, you know, it's, it's like how to fish boulder fields or sand beaches or, uh, you know, I did a whole uh, bait fish behavior, advanced bait fish behavior talk, uh, lots of, you know, discussion of plugs, that kind of thing. And then the other half of it is interviews, long, long-form interviews with some really great surfcasters, and that changes every year. Now, the thing about me, and you're probably guessing this from listening to this, everybody, these are very long. I mean, each session <laughs> is three hours long. Um, this year's series was like 45, almost 50 hours total. Um, and you can find out more about that on my website, indeepoutdoors.com. Um, and, yeah, it's really exploded. It started during the pandemic. It's like, well, what are we going to do? We don't have fishing shows. Well, I can do something over Zoom. And uh, that first year was about 100, 120 guys. And right now, you know, we're upwards around 300. That's so, so cool. Uh, That's really, really yeah, neat. It's, yeah, it's really, it's really fun. It's really fun. Yeah. Well, Jerry, it's a pleasure talking with you as always. And, and thank you for everything you do for Angler's Journal. And to all of our readers, make sure to pick up the magazine. You can subscribe at anglersjournal.com. We've got a few stories on the edit plan from Jerry that'll be coming out soon. And um, yeah, man, just thank you so much. I guess I, I'd say I'm looking forward to going fishing with you, but you know, you don't do that. So I guess <laughs> <laughs> I might make an exception for you and for someone associated so closely with just such a phenomenal magazine as Angler's Journal. Ah, well, that's kind of you. All right, buddy. Well, it was great chatting. Thank you so much.